Uh, I'm Greg Boyd, senior pastor here, uh, and uh, main teacher and things of that sort. Good to see you here. I'm glad you made the choice to be a part of what God's doing here. Uh, before I get into the Word, I, I want to just share something that's just been so encouraging to my heart. Yeah, we live in, right now, some really tough economic times. A lot of folks have lost their jobs, had cutbacks, and all sorts of stuff. Okay, it's just tough across the board. Uh, and so when you take up a special offering in those sort of circumstances, you never know what you're really going to get. Last week, we, we t- uh, took up an offering uh, to support Haiti, uh, to go towards the Haitian relief. And uh, the money will be used to uh, help two organizations, two ministries in Woodland Hills uh, that are centered in Haiti, COFED and Providence Ministry, and uh, uh, some, some beautiful things there. But we, last week, raised over $25,000, and I want to say thank you. And that is that's fantastic. Yes, praise God. It, it, that sort of thing just so encourages me. And I know that that is sacrificial giving. Uh, that, that's, that's not out of our surplus. Uh, there's not a lot of surplus going around, but I really appreciate that. Uh, one of the uh, things that we're doing with this money is uh, supporting a doctor down there uh, who comes out of Woodland Hills. Her name is Jen Halverson. I've spoken about her before. She's been to Haiti, done a lot of work in Haiti. And as soon as this earthquake happened... Um, uh, she started looking for a way to get down there. I was able to get on a, a, a plane and, and make it in there, and uh, now she's working with a clinic, like over her job here for a while, and she's working with a, one of these makeshift clinics that are down there and just doing some incredible stuff. Uh, she has a blog that uh, I want to just tell you about and encourage you to read. Uh, if you just Google Jen Helverson, you'll find it. Or uh, She entitled this uh, blog, This Is Not Gray's Anatomy. Which is kind of cool. And she's giving sort of a, a day-by-day account of some of the stuff that uh, she's, uh, she and her team are, are doing. And it's just a great way to stay connected with what's going on there. And some of it's just beautiful and marvelous uh, and horrific. And she has photos on there that are just, oh, infected arms that haven't been treated for seven days. And it's nasty. I'll tell you one of the stories that she shared um, and actually, in this one, she, she links to another blog that Tara Livesay, where she's staying. And, and Tara gives this full account. But uh, in, there, there's a place, a part of Haiti, it's the poorest part of Haiti, called the City Soleil. I've been there, and the level of poverty there is just unthinkable. I mean, Haiti on the whole is just uh, oppressed with poverty. But City Soleil, it's really just a dump where some folks started living. And it grew into sort of this makeshift uh, shanty town. Uh, it's just unimaginable. And that was before the earthquake. This earthquake's happened, and these people who had nothing now have less. And some of the folks that were injured there were too injured to try to make it to, to walk, to get transported to one of these clinics or to one of the hospitals. And so Jen Halverson and the team that she's a part of went down to City Soleil to see what they could do medically. And uh, among other things, they, they, they took 11 people, the 11 worst, uh, most injured people they could find, who have been really just laying on the ground for six, seven days, because they can't make it to these, the, these clinics, and they put them in two pickup trucks, these injured folks, piled them in the two pickup trucks. And the, the hospitals are full, and their injuries are beyond what their clinics can handle, so they we're asking the question, what should we do here? Now, they knew that this Navy comfort ship was coming in, which is going to be just you know, have all the, the best medicine and, and doctors and stuff like that. In fact, Jen initially was trying to go down there on this comfort ship. Um, 
And they didn't know when that ship was coming or when they'd be ready to take on people, but they thought, we have nothing to lose. So they just took these pickup trucks and started driving towards the coast. And in the, in the area where they thought the, the ship would uh, finally be docked. Uh, and as Tara Livesay tells the story, uh, after two hours, more than two hours of driving on undrivable roads and going through crowds and there's just so much chaos there, they finally made it to the shore and they found that this uh, team of doctors was just now setting up a, a tent uh, to start taking in people and assessing them in order that later on they could take them on the ship. Uh, and the, the folks said, we, we, we aren't ready yet to take in people. Uh, but Jen said to them, these folks don't have any more time. I mean, one of the ladies was pregnant, seven months pregnant, and had a broken pelvis. Uh, and so there was some really serious stuff going on there. So this uh, uh, military doctor got on the, the, the walkie-talkie, called the ship. And before you know it, there's a helicopter that comes and was able to just transport these 11 folks onto the ship. They were the first ones on the ship. In fact, some of you maybe saw on CNN that the, the, the baby was born on that ship. Uh, and, and that was because of this team. And see, I, I, it just does my heart good, and it should do all our hearts good to know we have a, we're playing a part in things like this, where these 11 people were probably thinking they're going to die, uh, just left out there on, 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 on these makeshift streets in City Soleil. Two hours earlier, they're looking at death, and now they're on a ship getting the best that Western medicine can, can give them. And that's just a praise God thing, a praise God thing, yes. Amen, yes. So, so uh, if, if you uh, weren't here last week and you still want to give, you can do that on the website. We have a Haitian Relief a place where you can make a donation there or uh, at the hub in the gathering area. Uh, there'll be uh, some buckets there if you want to make a contribution uh, to that cause as well. We are studying the book of Luke. That's what we do here. This isn't church. You thought you came to church, but we tricked you. This is really just a seminar and a worship time. Not just a seminar. It's a very important seminar. But we do training for church because we are the church, and church starts when we leave this place. Amen? So we study the Bible, nothing very fancy. And we're studying the book of Luke right now in chapter 21. And I want to start by... Uh, oh, by the way, this message is entitled, Stay Awake. Because I want you to stay awake during this message, but also it's about staying awake. At least that's part of what it's about. And I'm going to uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we really want to submit ourselves to your word, which is a lamp unto our feet. It guides us if we let it. And I pray for every person in this auditorium or who's listening through podcast, television, or any other means. And I just pray, Lord God, that you'll uh, help us to be open and receptive, maybe hear things in a different way, to be challenged perhaps in some ways, but most of all, Lord, uh, use this word to wake us up, to stir us up, to fan the flame, to rekindle our first love, to be people who live with our total trust in you and a sense of confidence that your will will be done in us and through us. Holy Spirit, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. amen. Starting with verse 28. The last verse we read last week. When these things begin to take place, Jesus says, Stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. These things refer to the events that are leading up to the destruction of the temple uh, and uh, the uh, decimation of, of Jerusalem, scattering of the Jews out of the, uh, the Palestine area. Um, this, whole, this whole passage, you'll recall if you are here last week, uh, was prompted because Jesus said that the temple would be destroyed and the disciples said, when will this take place? And he's been answering that question uh, all throughout 
uh, chapter 21 from verse 5 on. And so the, these things refers to all the events that are leading up to the destruction of the temple. The focus of this passage is on events that are going to occur in 70 AD when Rome sacks uh, Jerusalem and destroys the temple. And so the passage, as I said last week, shouldn't be used as sort of a cryptogram uh, that uh, you, you look at to try to decode to figure out how things are going to unfold uh, at the end of history. Uh, that's not its purpose. Yet there are principles, as I said last week, principles and teachings that apply to Christians in, whenever we're in circumstances like this. When we're facing the end of the world as we know it. Uh, and there's things that, that, uh, that, that we have to learn uh, from this. Uh, and so what we're going to see now as we move on is that Jesus is going to tell a parable and then supplement, with, uh, supplement what he's already said with some more teachings. And so I'm going to break this section uh, down into two separate parts. This is really a two-part sermon. Part one will deal with verse 29 through 32. It says this. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. Uh, what's happening here is Jesus is saying, well, look at the fig tree. In fact, you could apply this to all the trees. Because the point we're going to see here is that what I'm going to say here is obvious. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, these things I've been talking about, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass until all these things that I've been talking about have happened. Now, this generation, when Jesus uses that phrase, he's again anchoring his teaching in the first century. He's not talking about the literal end of the world. Everything he's been talking about is going to happen in one generation. These folks will be alive when this happens. It couldn't possibly be talking about the end of history as such. And what Jesus is telling them is this. If you're looking for it, then it will be obvious. When the trees start sprouting leaves, you know that the summer is near. Duh! Well, this isn't rocket science. Keep your eyes open and you'll know that this is going to be happening. And in fact, uh, it was rather obvious, uh, starting in the uh, 60s, uh, that, that things were getting, going south very quickly uh, between Rome and Jerusalem and, and things were heating up. And there was a lot of people who were saying that the judgment of God is coming. It was, it was obvious. I just want to draw attention to that fact for this reason. There's a lot of doomsday preachers around who, you know, are always trying to tell you that, you know, that signs of the times and all these sorts of things. And their approach is anything but obvious. Uh, they're, you know, spend a lot of time trying to figure out what does the 666 mean and, and who is the Antichrist? You know, could it be, could it be uh, you know, Henry Kissinger or maybe it's Barack Obama or maybe it's this guy or maybe that person and what's this Gog and Magog and these lotuses in chapter 7 and what about the, the bowls of wrath and does this come before or after in the seven-year rapture period, blah, 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 blah. And it's, it's just, they're, they're, they're reading the Bible like it was some kind of horoscope, or tea leaf reading, or, or something like that. And that what Jesus is saying here is this, you don't have to do that. It'll be obvious, okay, if you're looking for it. Um, and that's just the opposite of the mindset that these secret Bible decoders uh, tend to have. I really think that is a distraction, and in fact comes close uh, to practicing the sort of divination that the Bible itself forbids, trying to divine the future. What the, as if any of that poss could possibly matter. All the little details. 
This uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple brought an end to Judaism as they knew it. It brought an end to what's called temple Judaism, which is the Judaism that is centered on the temple. And then Jesus says that when that's happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, what's that talking about? Realize that Jesus used that phrase a number of times throughout the Gospels when he would do miracles and stuff. He says, if if what I'm doing is by the, the Spirit of God, you know the kingdom of God is near. And so it doesn't mean the end of the world. Well, what then, what then does it mean? And this brings us to, I think, a very important foundational teaching that is frequently misunderstood. So stay awake. Take notes if you need to. Uh, this is foundational stuff. To understand what Jesus is getting at here, you need to understand that the Old Covenant, which we call the Old Testament, Testament and Covenant mean the same thing. Um, the word covenant is a little more accurate. But the Old Covenant was a nation and land program. A nation and land program. Uh, The deal was this, God is saying to his people, if you will obey me, walk in my ways, then I will give you this promised land and I'll make you into a great nation. But if you don't obey me, then you are on your own and the land will be taken from you and you will not be a great nation. In fact, you'll lose your national status. It was a nation and land program. Uh, The temple was at the center of this because the temple came to symbolize. This wasn't the meaning that God gave it, but uh, for the Jews, it came to mean, for most of them, it came to mean uh, that this is God's house, which means God lives here, not there. God lives on this land, not on that land. God lives with this people, us, not with them. It was a a land and nation sort of program. Now, when Jesus shows up, Uh, He doesn't at all confirm any of that. When when Jesus shows up, he reveals what God is really like, the true character of God, what his will really is. And he comes to uh, uh, set his people free and to win for himself a bride. Unfortunately, his covenant people, on the whole, instead of embracing him and receiving him, uh, they reject him and end up participating in his crucifixion, which then evokes the ultimate judgment clause of the Old Covenant. God says, if you reject me, I will reject you, and you're on your own. Just as he did centuries earlier, earlier when, when, uh, when Babylon and Assyria attacked Israel, it was because God withdrew his protection. There's a point where God says, if you're going to push me away, I'll let myself be pushed away. And now the judgment clauses of the covenant come into force, and God lets these other nations have their way with Israel, and it's not pretty. So also, he would do with Rome. Uh, you want to reject me ultimately? Well, then, then I, you're on your own. As the covenant stipulates, and God withdraws his protection, and Rome comes and does some nasty, barbaric, terrible, terrible things uh, to the Jewish people. And that includes destroying the temple. Now, it's important to realize that God doesn't make Babylon an evil nation, or Assyria an evil nation, or Rome an evil nation. God doesn't make them do anything. God doesn't say, I'm going to now control you, and you go in there and do these nasty things to the Jewish people. God never makes any individual or a nation evil. He's a good God. He's always on the side of good. But when people reject him, there comes a point where God does say, okay, if that's how it's going to be, then I have to let you go your own way. In fact, we learn from Jesus that God cries when this happens. Because as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, he talks about this coming judgment, this coming destruction, and the Bible says he wails. He's crying. This breaks God's heart. But if our choice is to reject them, he honors that choice. And that's what the Bible means by the wrath of God and the judgment of God. The judgment as a natural effect of the cause of of, of rejecting God, uh, 
nasty stuff happens, and that is an expression of God's wrath. What was unique about Rome in this instance, as opposed to Babylon or Assyria, is that God would now use this judgment to demonstrate or to reveal, to manifest the truth that the land and nation program was now coming to an end. And just as the temple had symbolized for the Jewish people that God lives here and not there, and God is in this land and not on that land, and God is with us and not them, so also the destruction of the temple would manifest the truth that God has now forged in Christ a new covenant where, where God would not be, especially on the site of one group as opposed to another, and God would not be in one parcel of land as opposed to every other parcel of land. With his new covenant that was forged in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is doing a bear hug around the entire globe and saying, Ali, Ali, in free. And this is why Jesus, we saw last week, refers to the time after the destruction of the temple as the time of the Gentiles, the goyim, the, the nations. Because now, God, now the household of God will incorporate all different kinds of people. It won't just be specifically for the Jewish people. So the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated was now becoming a visible reality. And that's, I believe, what Jesus is getting at when he associates the manifestation of the kingdom of God with the destruction of Jerusalem. This, this end of the land and nation program explains a great deal. It explains why the message that Jesus brought was in many respects radically different from the message that you get in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus knew, of course, as the Son of God, knew that the, that the land and nation program, part of the Old Covenant, that that was coming to an end. And as we look back and read the, new, uh, the Old Testament, we can see that that was predicted. The, the land and nation program was always a provisional thing. It was there to lead us to something else, the New Covenant. But where most of the Jewish people were at this point in history, they were interpreting the Bible in kind of a self-centered way. And uh, so they thought the land and nation program was permanent. And so they wanted the Messiah to, to confirm all of that, to give us the land back, all of the land, and to make us a great nation as we were under David. And they expected the Messiah to do that. They wanted a military political Messiah. When Jesus shows up, he goes, nope, not going to happen. Uh, rather, he, he manifests and teaches about and embodies a very different kind of kingdom. Uh, you see in the Gospels and you see throughout the New Testament that the kingdom that, that Jesus inaugurated, the reign of God, that's what, what the word kingdom means, the reign of, reign of God that Jesus inaugurated into this world is not any longer about a particular ethnic group or a particular nation or a particular land. Rather, this kingdom is about the entire earth and it's about all people and it's about every nation. It is God's ali ali infri. Whosoever will believe, whosoever will receive him, whosoever will, will bow their knee and submit their heart and, and, and come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, you're part of the kingdom. And no longer is it, it has anything to do with your nationality or, or, or ethnicity or where you happen to live. Uh, God still loves the Jews, of course, but no more or no less than he loves Americans or Iraqis or, or Russians or, or Brazilians or any other people group. The kingdom of God is an all-encompassing kingdom. And in fact, and here is the most beautiful and radical and neglected edge of the kingdom that Jesus brought. In the kingdom, not only is it all-inclusive of all peoples, but all of those distinctions, based on how you look or what your ethnicity is, what your culture is, what your nationality is, all of those distinctions are rendered null and void. They are completely abolished. 
the world under the oppression of the devil causes people and, and tempts us to look at, at, at the nations and the people at, through the grid of those categories. And we assess things and file things and, and judge people based on all the different categories that we filter uh, our perception of them through. And so in the world's way of thinking, it means something significant, at least in some context, whether you're white or whether you're black, whether you're Hispanic or Asian. It means something, whether you're American or Iraq, Iraqian or Palestinian. It means something whether you're male or whether you're female. It means something whether you're well-to-do or poor. Means something what your last name is in some context, what your nationality is. It means something. The world invests all those. It means something what color your skin is. It means something what your hair looks like. It means something how you dress. The world invests so much significance in these distinctions. But in the kingdom that Jesus forged with his death, there's one new humanity, the Bible says, and all the walls of hostility have been torn down. And in Christ, there's neither male nor female. In Christ, there's neither a bond nor free. In Christ, there's neither rich nor poor. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. In the kingdom, all of those distinctions are to be completely denuded of their significance. All of those distinctions, the meaning and significance we put into them, uh, that the world puts into them, that divides us from one another, have been completely abolished. We, of course, still notice the differences, but rather than being an occasion... Uh, to divide us in the kingdom is something we celebrate because it just puts on display the multifaceted wisdom and beauty and character of God. In the kingdom, all of those kinds of, of, of ways of thinking and looking at people and assessing people and judging people are to be completely done away, which means, which means that in the kingdom, there is simply no place for thinking along nationalistic lines. Nor is there any place for thinking along gender lines and ways that you'd invest it with certain significance or socioeconomic lines. If we're thinking like the kingdom, that means you, we will, can never say that God is more here than there. God is over this nation more than that nation. God is with America more than, than Iraq or Afghanistan. God is with Israel more than Palestine. All of those kind of, of, that way of thinking is all old covenant kind of thinking. It's land, it's land and nation kind of thinking. And it contrasts with the kingdom way of thinking. We have to be vigilant to guard, uh, that, that ensure that we never get pulled into the us-them polarities of the world. Us-them. My tribe versus that tribe. God's here, not there. God's with us, not them. America versus them. My ethnicity versus that ethnicity. It permeates the diabolical uh, pollution of the world, but in the kingdom, all of it, all of it, all of it is to be done away with. We are citizens of a different land. If you're, if you're a submitted person to Jesus Christ, you belong to a different country that's not of this world. You're a citizen of heaven. You can say, yes, you're still a citizen of America or whatever nation you happen to belong to as you're listening to this, but that's, that's in the most trivial sense of the world, word. Your, your citizenship, your heaven citizenship trumps everything else. And, and it is a beautiful country. And our job, the Bible says, is to be ambassadors of that different country. Which means we, we, we represent that different country. And we're to be putting on display the beauty of that country, that coming kingdom of God. And one of the central aspects of this beautiful country 
is that all of the ugly divisions and judgments that, that, that characterize the fallen world, we're to be free of. And we look at the world through totally different lens, and that affects how we interact with the world and how we deal with the world. And the beauty of that is to draw other people into, attract other, other people into the kingdom. Now, one person said to me, in fact, more than one person, but most recently, several months ago, I guess it was, they said, well, are you saying that we should never pray God bless America? Because I got a bumper sticker that says that, and I'm kind of proud of it. And I said, you know what, you can pray God bless America. But, but right after that, pray God bless Haiti, and, 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 and God bless Afghanistan, and God bless Africa, and God bless the world. We're going to have a global perception no longer tied to this sort of parochialism or God bless America, as opposed to them. That is old, that's old covenant kind of thinking. I get, on a regular basis, and this might be a little bit more dicey, but please hear me out, I get on a regular basis cards, postcards, or sometimes plaques, or sometimes chocolates, or sometimes plates that have have, have something written on it along those lines, and they come from certain groups that are promoting this. Pray for the peace of Israel, or support Israel. And uh, they, they send those to pastors because they want us, they encourage us to, you know, keep that, uh, that, 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 that agenda in front of our congregations. And I am pro-Israel and I am all for that. And I want to pray for the peace of Israel. But in the same breath, I want to pray for the peace of Palestine. In fact, you're not going to have one unless you have the other. Amen. God is pro-Israel. God's also pro-Palestinian. God's pro-America. God's pro-the world. God so loved the world. And that parcel of land sort of thinking is just not part of the new covenant that Jesus has made with us. If there's any area where the Church of America falls short, I believe it's right here. As I look at it, the, the, the Church of America buys into the, the, the demonic conditioning of the world as, 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 as much as the world does. And that divisive us-them sort of thinking. We're as nationalistic as everybody else. It's just that we do it with Jesus' name. So it's like nationalistic idolatry on steroids. And it, it, it clouds the beauty of the, of the kingdom that we're to be representing as ambassadors of the citizens, and citizens of heaven. So the central point of this passage so far is that the destruction of the temple and the scattering of the people manifests the truth that the land and nation program has served its purpose and now we are entering a new covenant that's not about any particular parcel of land and not about any particular nation it's about the whole land, the whole earth, and it's about every nation. Which brings us then to the second aspect of this passage. Starting in verse 33. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day that I'm talking about, that will occur in your lifetime, that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. Like an animal that gets in a trap, that's how it's going to feel. Boom, it's there. Because you weren't watching for it. It will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. And then Luke closes out the chapter by saying, Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives, and all the people came early in the morning to hear Jesus at the temple. Two things he tells his disciples to do as they're, as they're looking uh, for the trees to start sprouting their leaves. Remember, he says, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 
He's saying the world as you know it is going to come to an end. And that's why he uses this sort of end of world, uh, word, world apocalyptic uh, language. The world as you know it's going to come to an end. It's going to come to a violent end. And as it's approaching, people are going to see this and they're going to start freaking out. But not you, not you. No, you're to lift your head high and be confident because your redemption is drawing near. And you can do that if, but only if you remember that while heaven and earth will pass away, my words will never pass away. The temple, in all of its grandeur, it will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And the Jerusalem that you knew and the religion that you knew, the nation that you knew, the program that you knew will pass away, but my, word, my words will never pass away. So they're to be encouraged, as they, while everyone else is freaking out, they're to be encouraged. Because their confidence isn't rooted in the stability of the temple or of the religion or anything else. Their confidence is to be rooted in the invariant stability of the word of God. And so it is for us. We're, we're not looking for the temple to be destroyed. We're in a different generation. We're not looking for Rome to attack. But we do know, don't we, that our world, world the world that we, that we know, can come to a speedy end. It happens all the time. And... and Knowing that if our identity and worth and significance and security is in any of that, there's going to be anxiety in our heart. Jesus is telling us to put all of our eggs in this basket. All of our worth and security and hope in the confidence that while everything we see, everything you see, everything we can touch, every, every material thing around us, it can, it can it not only can, but it will inevitably pass away. Well, that is true, it shouldn't cause our hearts to trouble because what we know, what we've got to know and hold with full confidence is that the words of Jesus will never pass away. Uh, our nation will invariably pass away. Democracy will pass away. Our financial systems will pass away. Uh, the the well-being of the whole earth will eventually pass away. God will create a new heaven and a new earth, but this one is, is going to, in some way, or shape, or fashion, wind down. Uh, world peace as we have it right now will sooner or later pass away. The end is not going to be pleasant. And on, our, on, our, on an individual basis, things can pass away. Our friendships can pass away. People die suddenly. Our health can pass away. Our own finances, as many of us know, can suddenly pass away. And if any of our hope and identity and security is in any of that, then how can you not have a racing heart and, and anxiety? Because you know that it's all just a matter of time before it leaves us. But we're to know that while all those things can pass away, the word of God can never pass away. The promises we sang about earlier, uh, they'll never pass away. When God says you are my child, you can count on that one. Take that to the bank, that's solid. When, when God says you're forgiven, you can take that to the bank, that's solid. It will go on forever and ever and ever. When God says, you're my, 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 my bride, I've made you altogether lovely, you ravish my heart. And he says that in the Bible. That lasts forever and ever and ever. When God says, you're seated with me in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and I've put my Holy Spirit within you, and, and, and the love and peace and the joy of the, of the Spirit is yours, and you have an eternal inheritance that will never, never end, that, 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 that is solid. Uh, no terrorist can get to that one. Uh, no financial collapse can get to that one. No flood can get to that one. No fire can get to that one. Heaven and earth can pass away, but it doesn't touch this. Amen? And it is so, so freeing, so incredibly freeing. To the degree that that is your confidence is so freeing. You, you know, you still appreciate the things around you, but there's a freedom there. And, and now when disaster is coming upon you, you can lift your head up. While the rest of the world is freaking out, you can lift your head up because your redemption draws nigh. Be free, be free. Put all your eggs in, in your trust in God. 
and what he says about you. Which, which leads to the second thing that Jesus says his disciples are to do. He says, be careful and pray. Don't let your heart be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and anxiety. Be careful and pray. Uh, dissipation simply means uh, uh, being torn apart, uh, fragmented, uh, being just torn in a lot of different directions. You're dissipating. Drunkenness, you probably already know what that means. Uh, careless reverie or drowning out your sorrows, escaping your sorrows through drunkenness. And anxieties are about the cares of this world, uh, the stuff that can easily consume you if you let it. And what Jesus is saying is that, that, that if if you're dissipating, torn in a lot of different directions, and, and if you're escaping your problems through alcohol or drug abuse, and if you're weighed down by the cares of this world, world, you haven't been vigilant and guarding against that, then, then when the world as you know it comes to an end, to his disciples that will be in 70 AD, to us it will be a different time. And it could happen tonight, you never know. But when that happens, you're not ready for it. It gets you like a trap. You're an animal that just got caught. And it's very hard to respond to those things in kingdom faithful ways if you haven't been prepared for it. So Jesus says, instead, instead of being torn in all these different directions and escaping the problems of the world, world, world through drunkenness and, and being consumed with anxieties, instead, you, you pray. You be vigilant and pray. And then he says, pray so you can escape what is about to happen and, and be able to stand before the Son of Man. Now, we would like to believe that he was telling us there, gosh, if we pray and are vigilant, we won't go through any of these problems. Now, this is our escape clause. And there's a lot of Christians who think like that. Trouble is, Jesus, we saw last week, just a couple verses ago, said, you're going to be seized, you're going to be put on trial, you're going to be persecuted, family and friends and everyone's going to turn against you, the world's going to hate you, and some of you are going to be executed. So apparently, he's not saying that we're going to avoid this. No, in fact... The reality is that none of the disciples escaped this. They all died. John lived a couple decades later, but he eventually died as well. But uh, he wasn't giving them a, a kind of an insurance policy here. He wasn't saying they're going to avoid the, the trials that are going to happen. What he's saying here, folks, is that they'll avoid the judgment, the meaning of these trials uh, for other people. Um, that's why he says, we saw last week, he says, you're going to die, but not a hair on your head will be harmed. And that was just an idiomatic way of saying, you're going to be okay. Of course you're going to die, persecuted. It's going to be really unpleasant too. But don't worry about that, uh, because right after that, you'll be standing before the Son of Man, the one who gave his life for you. Uh, be faithful, and so when you die, uh, that is, that, that, that's your rege the redemption drawing near. It doesn't have the judgment meaning that it has for other people. Now that applied to people in 70 AD, but it also applies to us. We're not looking for Rome to attack or the temple to be destroyed, but we do know that at any moment Jesus could return. Could be. Kingdom could, the, the, God could decide to wrap this up at any moment. Or if not that, we know that at any moment the world as we know it could come to an end. We know that at any moment the terrorists could strike. You don't know for sure that the plane you're going to get on tomorrow isn't going to blow up. You don't know that for sure. And if not that, diseases can strike and accidents can happen. The world as we know it could come to a, 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 a quick end. And so we're to be vigilant and pray that we're, we're looking, we're, 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 this doesn't catch us by surprise. We know how contingent, how transitory, how iffy, how uncertain everything is. And so Jesus is saying, stay awake to that. When we, when we fall asleep, now we start getting looped into the world and we find ourselves going in all these different directions. We're dissipating, we're full of anxiety, and maybe we try to medicate ourselves through alcohol or drug abuse. 
So he's saying, stay awake. Remember the purpose of this whole thing. It's driving towards a goal. And it will come to an end, and then God's will will be done. You find this refrain throughout the entire New Testament. Stay awake. Be vigilant. Uh, I find this, honestly, to be probably the most challenging aspect of being a kingdom person. Uh, To stay awake. Uh, What I find is that... uh, over time, I can be, gradually get secularized. The fire grows a little bit dim. The sense of reality, knowing God's presence, and it just kind of goes away. I, I don't change any of my beliefs or my, my, my behaviors, but something changes in me. And I think anybody who's walked with, with the Lord for any length of time will testify that there's something about time in this fallen world that can have an eroding effect. And your passion just sort of seeps away. Your enthusiasm seeps away. Your way of looking at the world gradually becomes secularized. And before you know it, you're basically a secular person, a pagan. It's just that you have Christian beliefs. And your faith becomes routine. The Lord here is saying, stay awake. And maybe if you're asleep, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. So I'm going to end by asking the Holy Spirit to do a work here in us. In fact, I'll tell you, my, my sense is that not only some of us individually, but we as a people, as a congregation, have somewhat fallen asleep. And God wants to baptize us in his fire again. Amen? So, we're gonna, I'm going to have some questions here. And I want you to close your eyes, if that helps. If not, you can keep them open. But be honest, and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to highlight any of these questions if they apply to you. And just be honest. Lord, We open our hearts and minds to you right now in this moment. Those in this congregation, those listening through podcasts or television, same thing. Ask this question. Am I as passionate about Christ as I've ever been? Am I and those I share life with, my kingdom community, are we as passionate about Christ as we've ever been? Was there a time when we really were more passionate What's happened? What changed? Have we lost our first love? Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. Highlight what needs to be highlighted. Ask yourself the question, is God as real to me right now as he was last year or five years ago or 20 years ago? Is Jesus on my mind and on my lips throughout the day or is he just an addendum to my secular day does it feel awkward now man maybe it didn't before but speaking about Christ talking about the Lord it just doesn't fit like it used to fit Holy Spirit help us to be honest ask yourself the question do I long for Jesus like I used to Do I pant after him like a deer pants for the water? Do I need him like the air I breathe? Or is my life pretty self-sufficient? Has my faith become largely a routine? Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. Ask yourself the question, do I experience the life of God, the joy and peace that I used to experience? Am I growing in my capacity to love, especially loving the unlovable, 
Do I love better now than I did last year or 10 years ago? And do I give more sacrificially now than I did last year or 10 years ago? Am I growing? Holy Spirit helps us to be honest. Am I and those I share life with, are we growing in our freedom from the idols of our culture, the values of our culture? Are we looking increasingly different than our, than our culture? Are we contrasting with our culture? Or do we blend in very easily? Have we lost our first love? Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. Do I have that peace that comes from putting all my trust in Jesus Christ? Like perhaps I once did. Am I preoccupied with the cares of this world? Am I being torn in a lot of different directions? Am I fragmented? Am I dissipating? Do I find that I try to escape the anxiety of my life or maybe just medicate the empty boredom of my life through alcohol, drugs, and other things? Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. And finally, if you knew that in two minutes Jesus was going to return, and establish his kingdom. And if you knew that in two minutes, the world, as you know it, was going to come to a quick end, would that be good news or bad news? Are you looking for his return with expectation? Or do you just live in the here and now? Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. And if any of those things applied to you, this isn't about shame or guilt. It's just about letting God do an inventory here. I want to encourage you to do three things. Number one, repent. Repent, which simply means turn. Turn. Commit to walking in a different way, a new way of life. Commit to being revived and renewed. And ask God to fan the flame and guide you. Second point is to ask God. We, we can't willpower our way into change, but we can choose to say, God, I want that fire back. I want that life back. I want that love back. I want that first love. I want to be excited about you once again. I want it to be natural to be talking about you and thinking about you. And ask God to fan that flame and then to guide you into how to put things in place in your life, strategies to stay awake, to be vigilant, and to guard against being consumed by the cares of this world. And thirdly, for those who don't have somebody that they can invite in on this process, I encourage you to find somebody or some other people to do this with you. We cannot on our own, I'm convinced, stay awake. We invariably become part of the pattern of this world. But somebody that you can say, well, I'll help you and you help me stay awake and keep that, that, that flame going. And when we see each other starting to sort of just slide back into the fallen normal of this world, world, as we invariably will, we'll be there to remind each other, stay awake and walk in a different direction. Holy Spirit, seal on our hearts right now the things that you've been communicating to us. Help us not forget or fall asleep. Fan that flame, burn that fire. Make us alive and vibrant people once again who live with the knowledge that everything will pass away but who don't fret over that because we also know that your word will never pass away. And that way we manifest the beautiful kingdom that you have came to establish.
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 If you want to contribute to the Haitian Fund, uh, you can do that back at the Hub. Our prayer teams will be up here if you want to come forward and receive prayer for anything. Or if you just want to pray on your own, uh, do that as well. Go out and be ambassadors of the beautiful country uh, that you're a citizen of. God bless.